Amen. Thank you, Trevor. And good morning. Uh, it is an absolute uh, pleasure and privilege to, to be here this morning. Um, I, you know, Marcus noted, we, we met actually at a speech and debate tournament. Um, he is a good friend. I did go to Kenya with him. Uh, just a tremendous honor to be able to fill a pulpit like this that is filled with such a, an incredible preacher, an excellent teacher, and, and indeed a good friend. Um, What's weird is that when I last left Magnolia, it was about 85 degrees, and the only thing I can really put together is Marcus said I would preach here when someplace froze over. I, I don't remember exactly. I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but, but something, something like that. But, but I do love it when churches can collaborate and we can get together to really help one another, bear one another's burdens, and, and be used by God for the edification of the saints. And I pray this morning that God would indeed use me in that regard. And this morning, I'm going to go through a very famous parable. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And as you turn there, I want to note for you that most people title this parable the prodigal son. And I think that is one of the worst titles for any parable. And I think it's one of the worst titles for any parable for a few reasons. One is the parable isn't primarily about the prodigal son. Two, the word prodigal isn't in the parable. And three, we don't even really know what prodigal means. And so Many of us believe, though, that prodigal refers to wayward. In fact, just last week, I had a, a dear friend of mine, a woman at church, uh, came up to me and she asked me to pray for a child of hers who is prodigal. And she's thinking in her mind that this is, is wayward. And, and we've all heard that. We've all probably even said that. I've said it myself. But that's not what prodigal means. The word actually means extravagant and spending. And in the parable, it typically refers to the son that wastes all of his money. That's what we're talking about. If you found your way to Luke chapter 15, I'm going to begin in verse 1 ahead of the parable. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And I want to stop here and, and note who the audience is that Jesus is speaking to. And there's two groups of people listed here. The first group was so bad that they get a special call-out from Luke. I mean, the tax collectors are on a whole nother level of sinning. They are professional extortionists and thieves. They were Jews working on behalf of the Roman Empire to rip off other Jews. That's the way that the people thought about it. They took a very high percentage of working people's money, gave some of it to the Roman Empire, and then kept the rest for themselves. Now, this would be like if the Canadians invaded us. And forgive me, Trevor, I just found out. <laughs> I, and I wanted to use this illustration because it's literally impossible. I didn't want to frighten anyone here in the new year as we get going. But just assume for a moment that all the Canadians grabbed their hockey sticks, they bum-rushed the border because there's no wall up there, and we weren't looking for it, we weren't ready, and they just took us over. And now everybody's saying A, we're, we're all wearing parkas and speaking French, and things are just really, really bad. And, and then to, to help pay for this government that we didn't ask for, <laughs> suppose that the Canadians come recruiting members right out of our churches, and they allowed those people to be the tax collectors. 
to squeeze as much money out of each of us as they possibly could. I mean, if that happened, we would be terribly disappointed, in fact, even angered by these people who claim to be Christian, but then begin ripping off God's people. And that's the way the Jews thought of the tax collectors. And they were so disgusted by the tax collectors that these people were actually rejected by Jewish society. They were not allowed to testify in court because they were seen as being so dishonest. And when they would go to the synagogue, they weren't even allowed to give their tithe. Now, you know you have to be pretty bad for, for the church to not accept your money. Amen? But, but I want to assure each of you in here, I've already spoken to Marcus. No one in here is that bad. No one is here. You are all really good. Um, okay, so these tax collectors are first-rate sinners. But then there are also the run-of-the-mill average sinners. And Luke just calls these people sinners. But now Jesus is eating with these two groups of people. He's hanging out with them. He's earned their trust. And this is a little bit controversial, as it would be even today. If we saw on the news today that Franklin Graham had been hanging out with Alec Baldwin, Khloe Kardashian, and Drake every Tuesday night for 20-cent wings down at Tailgaters, a lot of religious people would be really upset. I mean, what in the world is he doing? Has he compromised his integrity? Well, that's the kind of stuff that they're saying about Jesus here. Look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. You see, the religious elite were furious that Jesus was eating with these two groups of people, and that reveals for us that there's a third group of sinners here. These are, there are the first-rate sinners who are the really, really bad guys. Then there are the run-of-the-mill sinners, but then there are also the religious sinners. And these are the sinners that are self-righteous. They're judgmental. They're proud. And in this verse, they do what religious sinners always do. They see Jesus eating with the famously sinful, and they look down their nose to pass judgment on others. Because this is how it works when you're religious. You're aware of everyone else's sin, but you're ignorant of your own. Either way, Jesus here is going to love and serve and eat with all three kinds of sinners. The first-rate sinners, the average sinners, and the religious sinners who don't even know how sinful they are. And at the end of the day, we're going to discover that it's the religious sinners who are the most sinful at all because it's not the really bad guys that are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. It's going to be the religious guys who think that they're better than everyone else. Now, with that context, the parable of the prodigal son or the two lost sons, as I prefer to call it, picks up then in verse 11. And this is the longest of Jesus's parables. And so because faith comes by hearing. I'm just going to read through this entire thing, and then we'll come back through and we'll go through it sequentially. And, and as I read, read through it, remember that this is arguably the most profound and beloved stories in the history of the world, told by the greatest storyteller in the history of the world. Non-Christians know this story and they write music based upon it. Shakespeare wrote plays inspired by this story. Rembrandt painted a painting of this story. And here it is, Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent himself into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. So his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said, Father, look, for so many years I've been serving with you. I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you have always been with me. All of mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Hear the very word of God. Amen. A father has two sons, one who is rebellious, one who is religious. Sounds a little bit like the audience that Jesus is speaking to. But before we get to the sons, I want to look briefly at the father. The father is here, by all accounts, a good father, right? To be sure, there are bad parents that raise kids in a way that encourages patterns of sin and death. At the same time, there are good parents who have a rebellious child, and that's the case here. This father has loved and served his children well. Despite that, he has a rebellious child. He also has an obedient child. Now, some research says that the birth order in a family impacts your personality. They say that the older, the oldest in the family is typically the responsible one who seeks to please the parents, while the younger sibling is a free spirit seeking the approval of friends. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, notes that the first child grows up, takes a conventional job, and settles down near mom and dad, while the younger sibling goes off to live in the hip, shabby neighborhoods of New York and L.A., now, I'm not sure if that describes your family, but it absolutely describes my family as not only my children, but also my wife and my uh, family where we grew up in, where we were both the youngest ones, moved away from New York. Either way, this father is a good guy. And we also see that he's not only a good father, he's a good businessman. 
right? And this is part of the story that oftentimes gets overlooked. He, he understood how to make money. He understood how to invest and save and spend. Proverbs 13.22 says that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Well, his father was thinking and acting like that. And that, of course, should be our ambition as well. That, that when we die, we want to leave something by the grace of God, not only for our spouse and children, but for our grandchildren. So that means that we should practice good stewardship and prudent living and hardworking and smart investing. We do that now in order to help our families even after our death, as opposed to just wasting all of our money and going into debt by pursuing pleasure and toys or stealth and stuff. That's not biblical and it's not godly. And so this father, by all accounts, is good with money. He's good with love. He's built a world for his boys to grow up in, and he has affectionately tended to their hearts. But both boys respond tragically. Exhibit A is the younger son who responds rebelliously. Look back at verse 12. It says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, I want you to understand how rebellious that statement was. Think about it like this. When do you get an inheritance from someone? When that someone dies. So when this younger son was asking for his share of the estate, it was just like saying that, that Dad, I have things that I want to do in life, but these things require money. You have money, and so you are standing in the way of my goals. And because I want your money more than I want you, well, I guess what I'm saying is that Dad, I wish you were dead and I could have my money now. Can you imagine a child of yours saying something like that to you? That would be absolutely devastating. But that's exactly what this young man does. He dishonors his father. He disgraces his father. He disowns his father. And now, based upon Jewish custom and Jewish law, the father had the right to do two things here. He could slap him across the face and he can also remove the rebellious son from the family. In fact, it was even customary for Jewish families to hold funerals for their children when they acted like this, a symbol that they were no longer a part of the family. When you rebelled like this, you were dead to the family. And that's likely why the father says twice in this parable that my son is dead, but now is alive. This is shame at the highest level to have and to show such hatred for your father. And then to add insult to injury, when the son asks the father to give me my share of the estate that falls to me, he uses the Greek word usia for estate. And that word refers to the family possessions. In other words, he's asking for all the material stuff, the land, the animals, the buildings, whatever cash they had on hand. And in a two-brother family, according to Deuteronomy 21.17, the estate would be divided in such a way such that the older son got twice of what the younger son gets. This means that two-thirds went to the older son, one-third went to the younger son, and they must have had a lot. This family had a lot. We see in the story that they had servants. They hired musicians and dancers for the party. They had animals, including a fattened calf. They had a lot. But again, the text says that he wanted the usia. And the reason that's important is because that's not the normal word for inheritance. You see, the normal Greek word for inheritance is kleronomia. 
And that word refers not only to the material possessions, but also to the responsibility for managing the estate. You see, along with the inheritance of the estate comes the responsibility for its future prosperity and success. But Jesus says that the younger son didn't ask for the inheritance. He asked for the usia, just the stuff. He didn't want the responsibility. He didn't want to plan for its future. He's only interested in the here and now, and so he wishes his dad was dead so he could get all of his dad's stuff. Look back at verse 12 where we read that the father divided his wealth between them. Now, when the Pharisees in the crowd had heard this, they probably gasped. Rather than strike this disrespectful little son across the face like he deserved, the father gives him what he wants. The father divided all of himself, what the family produced for generations, his source of livelihood. Money he's worked his whole life to accrue is now gone. Money that he needs to pay his own bills and live his own life and pay his doctors if he or his wife gets sick. He liquidates his assets and he hands it all off to his foolish son. And then in verse 13, we read that the son didn't stay very long after he got the money. The text says that not many days later, he got out of there. Jesus tells us that just a few days after he gets his part of the estate, he leaves because he's sick of being in the father's presence. He's sick of having any accountability or relationship with the family. And so he takes this great amount of wealth and turns his back to leave. And I picture the father here just standing there and weeping perhaps even hoping that at some point his son will turn around and at least give him a farewell glance. But he never does because he really has no love at all for the father. Look back at verse 13. The younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. In this distant country, this younger son probably moves to a big city. He doesn't understand saving or investing or finances. So this guy sets himself up on the party trail, and he goes on a wild spree, gathering around him all kinds of people who wanted to cash in on his foolish generosity. He's like that kid who gets the big inheritance from his family. And then the next thing you know, he's out buying new clothes, a new car, a new condo, new furnishings, rounds of drinks at the bar for his new friends who aren't really his friends at all. He visits prostitutes, we see in verse 30, and blows it all, this great amount of wealth on this loose kind of living. Verse 14 then says that he had spent everything. And let's acknowledge, of course, that that is his fault. That is the younger son's fault. He spent everything. But then the text says a severe famine occurred in that country. And that's not his fault. But that's how life is. Some things are our fault and some things are not. But the combination of those things can be devastating because sin never works out the way we plan on it. He he didn't know that the financial crisis was coming, and so he didn't plan. And now real estate's down, gas prices are up, unemployment rates are high, he's been living beyond his means, and now the creditors are calling. And so it gets to the point that he starts selling his assets at a reduced rate, just like he made his father do. He becomes the guy who walks into the pawn shop with his Xbox one week and the flat screen the next week. He's got his car for sale on Craigslist saying, I'm desperate, I'll take the best offer you can give me. He's trying to make pennies on the dollar. 
And pretty soon he's kicked out of his condo. The bank's reclaimed his car. He needs to look for work, but nobody will hire him because he doesn't have a decent resume. He hasn't been a good employee, and he has no references. And now he's getting desperate. And I know a little bit, a very little bit, about being desperate. When I was 16, let me just jump down here and get off camera, give the people a break from seeing this mug. When I was 16, my mom dropped me and a friend off at this street where there were a bunch of stores and restaurants. And she said, go apply to every store and every restaurant on here. You need a job. Yes, ma'am. So we, we go in, and we're, you know, sometimes they would give us an application. Sometimes they wouldn't give us an application. Sometimes they would interview one of us or both of us. Sometimes they wouldn't interview us at all. But we were going religiously place after place after place until eventually that day I reeled in the big one. I nailed the interview, capture, captured the job, and I landed it. And it's probably appropriate that I don't let you know the name of this establishment, but let's just say it rhymes with Rick Ronalds, okay? And so, now I am, I am a very focused person, and that is code from meaning I can't multitask at all, not at all, right? I am on task, and I can only do one thing if anything else comes my way, I'm failing at it. So I am the burger guy at Rick Ronald's. And so I see how the things work. So you hear the ding of the microwave and the burgers are done. Yes, they were done in a microwave. And I would pull it out and I'd go burger, put it on top of a bun, squirt the ketchup and mustard together, grab some onions, uh, put the bun on, wrap it up and go. And I, and I got it down. My hands are just flying, right? It's, it's burger, bun, ketchup, onions, wrap. Burger, bun, ketchup, onions, wrap. And my hands are just doing this. You know what I mean? I know exactly where to go. I can almost look away. I know everything. I, I'm the burger guy. But then customers decide to get a little tricky. Said, I want a plain one, right? Ding, burger, bun, ketchup, onions, wrap. I, I'm just going. I blow right past that call. You cannot throw curveballs to a guy that's only studied fastballs. I cannot deal with this at all. I run right past the call, miss it completely. And after about 10 minutes, which at an establishment like Rick Ronald's is like an eternity, my boss calls back and says, where is the plain one? Where is the plain one? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I completely forgot about this one. Now I could go ahead and put another batch of burgers in. That's gonna be about three minutes. It's already been 10. This is a big deal. And so, now children, please plug your ears and cover your eyes. Don't follow what I did. But I grabbed one of the ones, thank you. I grabbed one of the ones that I had already made and in the corner of the counter, I just wiped off the, the, the condiments and wrapped it back up and put it on the shelf only to turn and look to see my boss. And that day, I was back out on the street again after a week of employment at Rick Ronald's, uh, working and back uh, applying to more restaurants. Now, you might not be able to relate to my story exactly, but all of us have been desperate for work. All of us have had poor resumes. All of us have been substandard employees or students from time to time. But few, if any of us, have experienced what this younger son did. Because in verse 15, he hits rock bottom when, his, when he finds the only work he can, working on a pig farm. Now, a Jewish boy feeding unclean pigs is about as low as you can get in that culture. 
And so again, when the Pharisees heard this, they must have gasped out loud a second time. But the boy does it because he is just so desperate. And his desperation grows when he actually starts lusting over the pig slop. He actually wants to eat the bitter pods that the pigs were eating. Okay, hope you get the picture here. He is as low as a person can go. But then he has an epiphany. Because in verse 17, we read that he came to his senses. He realizes that nobody loves him. Nobody helps him. Nobody is doing anything good for him at all. In fact, the last person to give him a gift was his dad. And so he thinks to himself, he's got a great dad, right? He's generous. He's generous to his family and generous to his servants. His servants are treated very well. They're not homeless. His dad is housing them. They're not hungry. His dad is feeding them. His dad's a great guy. He's been a fool. Maybe he could just go home and just be a janitor for his father. And so the Bible says that he understood his sin and he acknowledged his sin. And so he recites over and over again a phrase that he wants to say to his dad when he gets home in verses 18 and 19. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he just keeps repeating this phrase over and over as he heads back home. And so just like he turned from the father with his big pile of cash and he left, so now does he turn from his evil ways and return to his father. This is a picture of repentance, turning from our wicked ways and turning to our heavenly father. And then in verse 20, while the son is still a long way off, the father sees him coming. I mean, I mean, what was the father doing here? How could he have seen the son when he was still far away? Well, it appears that the father was anxiously waiting. You get the picture that this dad would wake up every morning and look out the window just to see if his son was coming home. He was praying every day for a safe return, even as he was getting reports from friends that things weren't going well. And then one day he sees a figure down the road and he wonders, is, is that my boy? And as the son gets closer, he can tell from his build and the way he walks it, that's him. My my son is back. And so he goes and he runs to him. Now, at this point, the Pharisees would have gasped so loud that it would have interrupted the story. This is truly a shameful reception in their book. And to be fair, it was a bit odd. I mean, older men don't run in this kind of culture. Even to this day, older men are to carry themselves with dignity. Plus, he'd be wearing a robe with an undergarment. So to run means that he'd have to hike up his skirt like a little girl. And and there's no grown man that wants to do the little skirt pull-up run, right? Just no one. This wasn't manly, and so it was just a little bit weird. But the point is, he can't wait another second to be reconciled to his son. And of course, his son didn't know this. The son was still memorizing his speech of repentance. He he knew that his father would be right to disown him. He knew that the father would be right to beat him. He knew even that according to Deuteronomy 21, the father would be right to put him to death. So in coming home, he was taking an enormous risk. But when he sees his dad running with a smile on his face, yelling at the top of his lungs, arms stretched out as he approaches and his robe falls to the ground. He realizes he had finally made a good decision. And then the dad grabs his son and he gives him a big bear hug and he picks him up. And in verse 20, the text says that he kissed him. And literally in the Greek, he kept on kissing him. And this shows that the father is tender. He's compassionate. 
And because the Father here is a picture of God for us, this is an example of how we can be. Dads, it's good to be tender and compassionate with our children, including our sons. Yeah, we teach them to be manly, courageous, and heroic, but we also want to give them hugs and kisses because what we see here is that, the, is that the Father is compassionate. He embraces us. He blesses us. He celebrates with us. And we also see here that the Father is himself the true prodigal in the story. It is God who spends extravagantly on sinners. It is God who appears to be wasting his resources on a rebellious son, on a wretch like me. You see, in verse 21, as the son is reciting the message that he memorized, the father interrupts the speech. You can look at that. He doesn't say the entire speech. The father interrupts him and says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has been raised to life again. He was lost and has been found. And then they began to celebrate. You see, the father extravagantly spends out of his abundant wealth on the son who has returned. And he asked initially for the best robe to clothe him, which the audience would have understood to be the best clothes the father has. It communicates that all I have is yours. But then the father also puts on his signet ring to communicate that he had the authority of the household. And then they also brought sandals because this boy was barefoot. You see, this son, like any other bondservant, had no shoes. And just think of this younger son's walk back home without shoes. The roads in those days were nasty and dirty. Animals traveled on them, and there wasn't a cleanup crew on the road. So it's just filled with animal feces and urine and dirt and mud and trash. And so this disgusting concoction would have been all over his feet. So he's reminded of his embarrassment, his sin, his shame with every single step that he takes. And so his father gives him shoes to restore his dignity. Now, clearly with how this young man treated his father, it is obvious that he deserves none of this. He comes to the father empty-handed, nothing to offer. And the father showers him with grace and restored him to the family. And of course, this is a beautiful picture of the grace of salvation that God gives to people who don't deserve it. Salvation is an amazing gift given to a bunch of undeserving rebels. Salvation is for people who are dead and who the father brings to life. You see, the, the act of the father in the parable is a perfect representation of our father in heaven because our father in heaven is a God of grace. Now, if the parable just stopped right here, it would be identical, almost identical to the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, which were told immediately preceding this parable in Luke 15. And Jesus says the payoff in both of those parables is that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And that's where we're at in the story of the prodigal son. The band is on the way. There's a huge party. The fattened calf has been slaughtered for this very special ceremony. But the parable doesn't end there. In fact, the second part is arguably more important than the first. It's the only thing that distinguish it, distinguishes it from the prior two parables in this chapter. You see, in verse 25, as everyone is rejoicing and partying at the return of the rebellious son, we're then introduced to the older son, the religious son. And the religious son is seemingly a good boy. He's out in the field working hard because he now has more work to do since his younger brother left. And no one even tells him about the party. I found that remar remarkable. They all just leave him out in the field to his work. 
But then he smells the burgers and the barbecue, and he hears the band playing and the, people's, uh, the people singing. And he asks one of the servants outside, what is going on in there? And they're like, haven't you heard? Right? Your brother is home. Your dad is blowing a ton of dough celebrating your brother who has just come back. And, of course, this infuriates the older son, so much so that he won't even go into the party. And so the father who we've seen is abundantly compassionate, now comes out to this son. And can you imagine the discussion? Dad, Dad, what are you doing? Well, your brother has come home. He's lost everything. He feels really bad. So please, come in and join us. He'd love to see you. Dad, there is no way I'm going in there. When he left, he turned his back on me. He turned his back on you. Look at me, Dad. I've been with you for years. I never left you. I do everything you ask, but you've never even given me a young goat, let alone a fattened calf. I'm a virgin while he's been with prostitutes. I make money while he wastes it. My brother needs discipline, not a party. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But don't miss that this older son is just as disrespectful as the younger son. Don't miss that the older son is just as unloving as the younger son. He doesn't want the father. Just like his brother, he wants his father's stuff. He wanted to manipulate the father with his obedience. Now, let me just pause there for a second. Let that line soak in. Because our hearts are desperately wicked, we can actually seek to manipulate God with our obedience. By living moral lives, we can tend to think that God owes us something. We can tend to think that we really don't need Jesus. He helps me. He inspires me. But I don't need him saving me because I can save myself. Tim Keller notes, again, that there are two ways that you can seek to be your own savior. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And the other is by keeping all of the moral laws and being very, very good. You see, friends, if we are obeying God in order to obligate him to give stuff to us, then we are acting like the older son in this story. If we get jealous when God blesses others, we are acting like the older son in the story. If we think that they are the bad people, but we are the good people, we're acting like the older son. If we get angry and bitter, not sorrowful, but angry and bitter when life doesn't go as we want it to, we're acting like the older son. If we believe that unanswered prayer is a sign that we've done something wrong, or when something bad happens that that's a sign that we aren't living right, or if criticism doesn't just hurt our feelings, but it absolutely devastates us, or if our sin brings irresolvable guilt, then we are acting like the older son by failing to understand the love and the grace of our Father in heaven. Look at verse 31. I love the Father's response here. Because he doesn't condemn the older son for his disrespect. Instead, he's just as loving and kind with the older son's rebellion as he is with the younger son. You can read in verse 31. I'm going to paraphrase again. Forgive me of that. The father says, son, you've always been with me. I'm not agreeing with anything your brother has done, but I love you both with all of my heart. I, I welcome him home, and I'm glad you've never left. This isn't anything negative about you, son. If you're worried about your money, don't worry. Your two-thirds is still there. I haven't touched any of that. It's all yours. I don't care about the money. I just want my sons, and I want us to be a family. But the religious son rejects this offer. He will not come into the banquet. 
And yet, of course, this is the point of the story where the Pharisees could finally sympathize. They were cheering the older son for his principled stance against this perceived injustice. How in the world could the father accept back that rebel? This is a picture of the Pharisee at the temple beating his chest, not beating, looking at the man beating his chest saying, thank you, father, for not making me like this sinner over here. But then the story ends there. Jesus moves on. And the Pharisees realize that they're still on the outside of the banquet. And friends, I want you to know that that message is just as much a part of this parable, if not more so, than the message of accepting back the rebellious son. The father isn't playing favorites. But if the religious sinner doesn't repent, he will not have a seat at the banquet. Okay, after all that, we have two sons. There's a rebellious son and there's a religious son. Which one are you? All of us have a bias towards one of the two of these sons. Let let me just describe them both. Rebellion is about creativity and inventing new stuff, new lifestyle, new sexuality, new culture. He's not bound by the past. He's his own person. Just get with the times. Religion is about custom and tradition. He does things this way every time. Why? It's tradition. Rebellion is about nonconformity. He's not going to live by cultural standards. He's going to create all new ones. So he enters the urban, artsy, indie culture that supports alternative sexuality, alternative spirituality, alternative political ideology, because it's all about expressing yourself. Religion is all about conformity. Play by the rules. Don't stick out. Dress the same. Live the same. Act the same. Don't be a unique individual. Rebellion breaks the rules. Religion keeps the rules. Rebellion tends to be liberal. Religion tends to be conservative. Rebellion tends to be immoral. You can look at the rebellious son and see that he is obviously immoral. When you log on to his InstaFace account, you see photos of him with lewd women drinking and smoking. It's pretty clear what this guy is doing. Religion is moral. He goes to bed early. He wakes up early. He works hard. He doesn't cheat. He's a proverbial goody two-shoes, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. He He lives the clean, moral life. Religion disobeys God to become his own God. Religion obeys God to become his own God. Rebellion tends to help people to make himself feel good. He he doesn't like feeling judged, so he helps other people in order to feel good about himself. Religion tends to help people to make himself look good. He has a concern for his own image, so he helps people so that you all know just how righteous he is. In rebellion, the sin is visible. It's obvious. The younger brother's lost weight. His hair's not combed. He doesn't even have any shoes on, for crying out loud, right? He's on his way to, to rehab. It's very visible. In religion, the sin is invisible. It's not out there. It's in here. He has pride, self-righteousness, a critical spirit. Rebellion uses people. Religion doesn't use people. Religion judges people. Rebellion is unrighteous. Religion is self-righteous. In fact, the only thing these sons have in common is that neither loves the father. One rebels to get away from the father's influence and control. The other obeys as a means of manipulating the father. Both want the father's blessings. Neither want the father. So again, which one are you? 
And let's note that we all tend to vacillate from time to time between these two. They're not mutually exclusive, but which way does your heart incline? Are you the rebellious son? Are you the religious son? Let me remind you that there's a third son in the story. He's the one telling the story. He's not religious and he's not rebellious. He's the son of God who rejoices in heaven whenever one of these sinners repents. Jesus, friend of sinner, is the one whom our hearts must seek. Now, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on a mission to die on a cross in our place and to nail our sin debt to that cross. And so let's all acknowledge that before, before Christ saved any of us, every one of us was like the rebellious son or the religious son. But because Jesus, we can be like the third son. Because Jesus is how the Father runs to us. Jesus is how the Father embraces us. Jesus is how the Father kisses us and blesses us and adopts us into his family. The Father actually clothes us with a robe of Christ's righteousness. And the meal that we'll eat with the Father at the end of all time will be a table set by Jesus Christ, whose name is faithful and true, who himself is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? But only if we repent and believe the gospel. If we fail to denounce truth, if we fail to denounce, sorry, and turn from either our religious or our rebellious sin, then we will have no part in this banquet. But if we trust Christ and Christ alone to save us, then we will discover that Christ will actually be our driver, our chaperone, and our very ticket to this banquet. Okay, I have one final question for you. One final question, and it's the question from the perspective of the Father. Who can't you love? Friends, who can't you love? The Father in the parable loved and embraced both sons. He ran to the younger. He left the party for the older. Who is it that you can't love? Do you struggle to love that mother who just doesn't understand you? What about that controlling father who was just so cruel to you? Do you see his judgmental stare, his furled brow, his crinkled nose as he stares at you? What about that legalistic friend who thinks that they're just so much more holy than you are? Or do you struggle to love the militant homosexual, the abortion doctor, the Muslim, the socialist who wants to raise your taxes to raise and to fund a Green New Deal? Who can't you love? Friends, we must recognize that the Father in this story loves all kinds of sinners. And our Heavenly Father calls us to do the exact same thing. We are never to endorse their sin, of course. But there should be no one that is too judgmental for us to love. There should be no one that is too different from us to love. Even if we are hated, we must love like the Father in the story who was hated, who understood that the kindness of God leads to repentance, Romans 2.4. So if your experiences have made it difficult for you to love and forgive people, or if you align yourself too much with the rebellious son or too much with the religious son, or if you find that you only want God's blessing and not God himself, then turn around in 2022 and run home to the Father and recognize that we will never stop being younger sons 
and we will never stop being older sons until we acknowledge our sin, until we rest in our faith, and we sit at the feet to love and to learn from the work of the third son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for an incredible parable told by your son in your word. Father, no way can we fully grasp and understand the meaning and the extent of the teachings contained in this parable. But Father, I thank you for being so incredibly gracious that you speak to each one of us where we're at. Father, I pray that as your word was scattered forth here today, even in my own life, I pray that each of us would have hearts that received that truth and that you, Father, would cause it to bear fruit some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, and never for our own glory, Father, but only for yours. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so very much. In Jesus' name, amen.